at Church on Mill is our internship program. Thankful that as a church, we invest in young men as they prepare to uh, do vocational ministry. And that is something that we are all a part of through our giving. So thankful for you and that giving. Um, we get the privilege of hearing from Brandon Remus this morning. Brandon is our newest pastoral resident and also works on staff with his uh, new, new wife. So won't you join me uh, in welcoming Brandon this morning. Good morning. I like this mic. It makes me feel like the Backstreet Boys. It's probably why Chuck has it. Um, to start off, have you ever noticed that humans have a constant need for affirmation? From the way that we make ourselves presentable when we get dressed in the morning, from the way we answer questions like, how are you doing? And even when we're terrible, we'd say, oh, I'm good. <laughs> we all do this because we want other people to like us. We want other people to think we're capable. If you watch any TV or you look at any social media platform, it doesn't take long to see that almost everybody wants to be liked. Allow me to share with you some of the posts on Instagram I saw this week that illustrate this. One girl I know posted pictures of her new haircut. Caption, what do you guys think? Donna did a great job at the salon. One guy I knew in high school posted a picture uh, of his employee of the month certificate. Caption, I've always wanted one of these. Or what about the massive influx of seemingly hallmark Christmas pictures that you see on your Facebook, your Instagram, or the cards you've received in the mail? Everybody's smiling. They look so happy in their turtlenecks. <laughs> Even the dog seems to have a certain glow about it. And we think, man, that family is really nice. They seem like they're having such a fun time. They're like my family. That's probably like the 30th picture they've taken, but we don't know that. <laughs> but you see, everybody, the way that we, we post on Instagram, the things that we do, we try to make ourselves look presentable and pleasing to other people. I debated whether I should share this or not, <laughs> but in high school, I'm sad to say that even when I was looking through my old Facebook photos, uh, I found some pictures of me in high school holding my baby cousins uh, because I used to think girls would think I was sensitive and they would like me. <laughs> and so all of us, all of us want to be pleasing. And you don't have to have social media to see this. Just think of your own personal experience. Have you ever wanted to hear your father say, son or daughter, you did a good job? Or maybe you're a dad who craves to hear from your children, I love you. Maybe you're a husband or a wife and you feel as though you never hear the appreciation or receive the respect of your spouse that you so desire. 
Maybe you wonder if you're beautiful or even lovable. I lost my place. <laughs> okay. Uh, the bottom line is that all of us want to be pleasing. And if you find yourself in this situation, uh, then I hope today you walk away encouraged. Um, but let's table that discussion for now, and we'll move on to the text. And we'll come back later. So today we're in Matthew 3, 13 through 17. Uh, we're finishing our sermon series on the Savior, uh, which is talking about Jesus and his birth and the events surrounding his birth. Um, so today, Matthew 3, 13 through 17. Uh, I'll give you a moment, and then I'll read. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So Jesus comes to Galilee to be baptized by John. And we see this really incredible picture. Uh, it's a rare time in Scripture where we see the Trinity all in one place at the same time acting. Here the Father through the cloud, says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. We see the spirit descending and inaugurating Jesus' ministry as it anoints him. And then Jesus, the son, being baptized in obedience to the father. It's really a beautiful picture. But I guess my first question reading this verse was, why is Jesus getting baptized in the first place? And if you're confused by that, don't worry, John the Baptist was confused too. <laughs> Imagine this picture. You are John the Baptist. Your life from your very birth has been dedicated to paving the way for the Messiah. And here you are out in the wilderness preaching at a people who are far from God. Israel, repent. The kingdom of heaven is here. The Messiah is coming. And here comes the lowliest of Israel, the prostitutes and the tax collectors. They see their sin and they seek repentance. And so they come to John to be baptized. And to your astonishment, as you're pleading with Israel, these people are coming to be baptized. Here comes Jesus, the Messiah. The one you're preaching that these people need to He's the reason why these people need to repent. I mean, it's no wonder John is confused. He wants to be baptized with the tax collectors and with the prostitutes. What is going on here? So today, I hope to clear up some of that confusion and help us see the beauty of this moment in Scripture as Jesus is baptized. So we're going to look at three things today. First, what is baptism? 
Second, why does Jesus come to be baptized? And then finally, how does this speak to our deep need as humans to be pleasing? So let's go to the first point. What is baptism? Simply put, baptism is getting dunked underwater. <laughs> uh, there's nothing special about baptism itself, but the rich, or nothing magical, I should say. Uh, but the rich symbolism involved is important because it shows the, the truths that God has changed our lives. Now, baptism is also commanded of Christ, by Christ, uh, and we, that is why we practice it today in the church. Uh, in the Bible, there are multiple baptisms, both pre-Jesus and post-Jesus, and today we're going to talk about two of them. The first is John's baptism. So John uh, came preaching in the wilderness. And if you've read Malachi, which is the last prophetic book of the Bible, Malachi foretold that there would be a prophet. This prophet would come and he would turn Israel's hearts toward God. Then there was silence for 400 years in the New Testament. John was that promised prophet. John's job was to call Israel to repentance and to turn towards God. And John did this through baptism. See, uh, repentance is this idea of total change. It's doing a 180. And so when John's baptizing them in repentance, what he's telling them to do is to turn from their sin and to turn towards God. And baptism is the act in which these people who recognize they need repentance are signifying to others that I, I'm sorry and I'm turning towards God. And the, the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the people of Israel were the ones that were coming to be baptized. The weird thing is that in the Old Testament, the only people who were baptized were Gentiles. And it was Gentiles who are people who are not Jews, so not God's people. It was when Gentiles came to realize that God, Yahweh, was true and the real God that they would come to Israel to become a Jew and they would be baptized. And baptism was like a cleansing of sorts because Gentiles were nasty, disgusting people. They were evil. They did abominable things. They worshipped abominable gods. And so to Israel, these were people you don't associate with. And if they wanted to be Jews, they had to go through this process uh, of baptism to become a Jew. So here John, now up here on the scene, and he's telling Israel, God's chosen people, that you too need to be baptized. You too are just as disgusting and abominable and as unrepentant as the Gentiles are. Israel, you need to repent. It's incredibly humbling. And uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious elite of the Jews, did not like this at all. Because they believe that their heritage is what made them right with God. And so when John comes and says, you need to be baptized too, just like everybody else, they weren't very happy. That's so why last chapter he calls them a brood of vipers. And so if you think about this progression, Gentiles to Jews, it's even weirder that Jesus, the perfect one, would come seeking baptism. Now John's baptism was a precursor to Christian baptism. 
Uh, Christian baptism, as we practice today, is similar to John's, but it signifies so much more. After Jesus would come and live and die for us, he commanded that all the disciples go and baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is the baptism we practice today in the church. And Christian baptism involves repentance, turning from your sin and turning towards God, but it is also, it is also more than that. It's the outward expression of an inward change that happens when we become believers in Christ. It literally signifies death and new life. In the dunking of somebody underwater, we're burying their old life. And in raising them out of the water, they're in new life. They're an actual new creation in Jesus. It's a beautiful depiction of what happens when we come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. That we're not just turning from our sins towards Christ that were a new creation. And so we have John's baptism, the precursor, pre-Jesus baptism, and then we have Christian baptism, post-Jesus. Jesus didn't need either of these. He wasn't repenting for anything. He was perfect. And he didn't need Christian baptism. He was the way to salvation. So why is he coming for bap- to be baptized? That brings us to point number two. Uh, scholars debate the exact meaning of why, uh, but there seems to be a convergence of a few things in Jesus' baptism. For one, I think this is really cool. Jesus is showing how he came in the world and that he would eventually die and rise again on the third day. See the symbolism in baptism. In his death and rising to new life, so he is pointing forward to when he will one day die on the cross and rise three days later. In this way, we see baptism. The baptism of Jesus not just shows the beginning of his ministry, but also the end of his ministry. But what does the text say? If we look back, John asked Jesus, why do you want to be baptized? (laughs) Jesus says, to fulfill all righteousness, John. That's why I'm doing this. And so let's break that down a little bit. This word fulfill has been used before by Matthew. And it's a theme of the first four chapters. Uh, If you look back, chapter one, um, Matthew depicts the lineage of Jesus. And he starts with Abraham, the father of all the Israelites. He doesn't go back to Adam, but he starts at Abraham. And it's deliberate because what he's trying to show is that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the promises that have been given to the Israelites. Now, starting with Abraham and his descendants, leading to David, the greatest king that Israel had, and then his descendants, finally, to Jesus. And we're reminded of these covenants. To Abraham, it was promised that God would bring forth from him a great nation. And out of this nation would come a great king. To David, he promised that God would establish David's line forever. And that another great king would come after David. And this is a king 
who God's steadfast love would not depart from. And God said of this king to come, I will be to him a father, and he will be to me a son. Matthew does this to show that Jesus is that promised king. He's the fulfillment of these covenants, of this lineage, all pointing towards Jesus. He also shows the fulfillment in prophecy. In chapters 1 and 2, he keeps using this phrase, and so it was done to fulfill what the prophets said. Matthew's quoting the Old Testament uh, and showing how all of these prophecies are pointing forward towards Christ. Everything in the Old Testament, all of it, points to Jesus, the Messiah, the promised one of God. We even see this imagery when Matthew speaks of the birth of Jesus, being like the birth of Moses. Just as Moses was born into a period when the Egyptian king was slaughtering all the firstborn children of Israel, so Jesus was born into a period where Herod was slaughtering all the firstborn children of Israel. Just as Jesus was taken into Egypt, just like the Israelites went into Egypt, so the exodus happened and Israel left, so Jesus leaves and returns to his homeland. And what Matthew's trying to do is make it abundantly clear here. Jesus is the true and better Israel. And he's going to show how where everywhere Israel fails, Jesus is going to succeed. And in case this seems like simple circumstance, Jesus gets taken into Egypt, Jesus has this lineage, he's not really like making decisions of his own. Well, here in Matthew, Matthew 3, when Jesus chooses to be baptized, now as an adult, he's making these decisions himself. And he comes to John not just to fulfill the prophecies, not just to fulfill the covenants, but now to fulfill all righteousness. So what does righteousness mean? A simple way to think of it is to be in right standing before God. It's to live in a way that demonstrates conformity to the character and law of God. Some of you in the room are probably thinking, that sounds cool, but I don't see why Jesus needed to fulfill that. After all, I don't need that. I'm a good person. Many of us think we are righteous. How often in my own life I look back and I say, I'm good enough because, you know, at least I'm not as bad as that guy. Or, yeah, I feed the homeless. I tithe to the church, so I guess I'm doing okay. But recognize that to exist in the presence of a perfectly righteous God, we too must be perfectly righteous. Problem is, all of us have failed to do this. None of us are in right standing with God. In Romans 3, 10 through 18, Paul quotes from Psalms. And he says this, and he's speaking to the Jews and to the Greeks, basically God's people and not God's people. So everybody in this room, this applies to, whether you're religious or not. Says what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already been charged that all, 
both Jew and Greek, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Paul is saying that none have right standing before the Father. And even our own need for affirmation that we talked about earlier is evidence of this. Because when I seek affirmation of others, what I'm really doing is using them to make myself feel good. Even our want to be pleasing shows our true colors, that we are a selfish, unrighteous people. It also doesn't take much if you look at human history and you see the bloodshed and the misery and the wars that we start and the affliction that we cause, not just to the world but to other people and not even just to people that we don't seemingly know personally but to our own families. The greed and gluttony we see in American society alone. Even this week, as your family gathers for the holidays, for Christmas and New Year's, seems like conflict is inevitable. It seems you hurt the people you love the most. It's not that we don't strive to be good people or even to love one another. It's just that by nature, we are incapable of loving and living righteously according to the laws of God. Church, this may seem depressing, but hear the good news. There was one who was righteous. One man, Jesus Christ. And this man did not simply come to live righteously. He did not just have right standing before God. But here, in this text, he came that he might fulfill all righteousness. This is the idea that he would give us his righteousness. That he would put us in right standing before God as well. How is this possible? See it here, beginning in Jesus' baptism. See what Jesus is doing in his baptism. One of the reasons he's being baptized is to identify with you and me. Think about it this way. Just as we, sinful people, are baptized now as Christians, to identify ourselves with the Savior. So Jesus, the Savior, was baptized there in the Jordan River on that day before John to identify himself with sinful man. 
He who had no sin took his place amongst those who had no righteousness. This still seems ambiguous. Look with me at 2 Corinthians 5.21. Paul says here, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. To break this down, it's saying for, for us, God made Jesus to become sin. Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin. Why? So that you and I might become the very righteousness of God. See that picture in the baptism here. As Jesus identifies with humanity through his baptism, show how he, showing how he will become sin, like sinful humans, and he does this to fill all righteousness, to make us righteous. I confess that often when I think of the gospel, I think of the first half of 2 Corinthians 5, 21. I think Jesus was made to be sin. I think of the fact that God sent Jesus to die on the cross for me and how grateful I am that when he did, he took my sin upon himself that I would not suffer the wrath of God, but he would. It's beautiful. But have you sat in this thought recently? That Jesus did not just take your sin, but he also handed you his very righteousness. We think of the gospel in terms of something like getting F's on our report cards. All you guys know what I'm talking about. Hopefully not most of you. Uh, (laughs) Or you get a really bad performance review at work and Jesus comes and he wipes the slate clean for us. We get this blank sheet. Now we get to try better next time to get our A's. But the gospel is so much better than that. It's not that Jesus just takes our F's and wipes the slate clean, but in fact, he gives us his report card or performance review. And his is perfect. He's righteous before the Father, and it's counted as ours. This is possible because at the baptism of Jesus Christ, Jesus actively is choosing to live righteously, identifying with man And when he lives a perfect life, detailed all throughout the rest of Matthew, and he does so in order to live for us. Have you ever wondered why Jesus didn't come as a 30-year-old man? Why, what I mean is, is why didn't he just, why did he have to come as an infant? Why did he grow up as a child? Why did he choose to go through puberty? That's a great question. (laughs) Or better yet, why didn't he show up right before his death and just be nailed to the cross and take the sin and leave? It was because it is not simply Christ's death on the cross that accomplished your salvation. 
but it was also his perfect, sinless, righteous life. And when Jesus dies, he does take your sin upon himself. But as 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, he also gives you his righteousness. So to answer our question from earlier, Jesus is baptized to identify with us that he might fulfill all righteousness. And what that means is that he might make us righteous before God. Martin Luther called this idea the great exchange, that the Holy One of God, Jesus, who stands at the right hand of the Father, sees us, these terrible, crippled, hopeless human beings. And he doesn't just make us even with the Father, but he actually comes down and takes our place and takes our sin upon himself and then gives us his right standing before God. It's beautiful. And now you're probably wondering, how does this connect to our deep need to be pleasing? Let's look back at Scripture again. Matthew 3. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Through Jesus' righteous state before God and his obedience to the Father, God was pleased. And this is great news for us. Because in Christ, we are now counted as righteous with him. And if God looks at us then and does not see our failures, but he sees Jesus' success, then believe it or not, Christian, that means God also sees you as pleasing. Because you stand on the righteousness and obedience of God, not your own. In closing, Allow me to address three groups of people. First, to those of us who constantly strive for the affirmation of others. If you are the one constantly checking social media to see how many people liked your picture, or if you're the one grinding yourself into the ground at work so that you might earn a promotion or the recognition of your boss, or if you clean your house incessantly around the holidays to look like you have it all together, or maybe you're obsessed with body image, trying to make yourself feel beautiful, others will think you're beautiful. Allow me to tell you that the affirmation of others is fleeting. Now, I'm not advocating to be lazy at work, I'm not advocating that we don't clean up after ourselves, please, especially before you come to church. (laughs) And uh, I'm not advocating don't post pictures of your vacation or things that you think other people will enjoy. But I am saying don't base your worth on the fleeting approval of others. There will never be enough likes on your pictures. Even if you get the promotion at work, you will still have to please the next guy. If you finally get your house clean, it's going to get dirty tomorrow. 
And even if people think you're beautiful now, one day you're going to be old and ugly like Chuck. <laughs> but there is, there's one whose approval you cannot lose, whose pleasure is yours eternally, because Jesus has won it for you. God the Father, through Jesus' perfect life, now sees you as pleasing. And the incredible thing is he sees all your flaws in greater detail than anyone else, and he loves you more than anyone else. <laughs> and it's all because the perfect righteousness given to you by his son. God is pleased with you, Christian. Second, I want to speak to those who find it impossible that they could ever be pleasing. To those of us who think, how could the Father ever love me? Maybe you came to the Father realizing this, but now you're somehow trying to work your way back into his good graces. As if you've forgotten how you got there in the first place. I don't know about you, but this week I needed this truth in my life. Admittedly, I've been thinking lately that I've got a handle on my sin. And then when I think about it, I'm not all that bad. Well, this week, a sin from my past reared its head and I bit. And I cannot tell you how frustrating, how hurtful it was to relapse into something that I thought I had overcome. Maybe you, like me, are struggling with something. Maybe it feels like it's killing you. Maybe it feels like no matter how hard you try, you just can't beat it. Maybe you, too, have crippling sin in your life. And you wonder, how could God ever be pleased with me? Let me encourage you to grip tightly to this truth. That in repentance... Even when you fail, if you are in Christ, you are not measured by your mistakes, but you are measured by the perfect righteousness of God. This truth was incredibly helpful to me this week. You see, because in Christ, because we have his righteousness, we are not judged by our unrighteousness, but through Jesus judged by his righteousness. And that means for even the one who thinks they're absolutely unlovable, the one who screws up again and again, in repentance, through Christ, you are absolutely lovable. You're absolutely pleasing to the Father. God does not just make you tolerable when Jesus saves you, but he in fact calls you his child all because of what Jesus has done for you. You too, Christian, are pleasing to God. Lastly, to those of you who would not claim to be Christian or followers of Christ, aren't you tired? Are you tired of living for the approval of others? 
Are you tired of wondering whether you're pleasing or not, or basing your worth on what other people think of you? My urge for you is that you would recognize Christ's righteousness can be yours. And more than that, that it's something you desperately need. Because as it stands, God is not pleased with you. And if God looks upon you, and Christ's righteousness has not been given to you, and then there is no great exchange. But you stand guilty in your sin. And the full just wrath of God will be spilt, and not on Jesus, but on you. If you find yourself there this morning, then I plead with you to turn from your sin and trust in Christ's atoning death on the cross. If you wonder how to do this, God has provided a way for this great exchange to happen. In Romans 10, 9 through 10, Paul says it well, concisely. He says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. You can do this today. And I guarantee you, if you ask the person sitting next to you, how do I receive Christ's righteousness? How do I come to know God in this way? That they would be happy to talk with you about that. My prayer is that all of us would know Christ's righteousness today. And that for us Christians, you would know that you are pleasing before the Father. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are holy where we are not holy, that you are righteous where we are not righteous, and that in your grace and mercy you sent your Son that he might live a life as a substitute for us and die a death as a substitute for us. We praise you, Lord. We thank you for your mercy and your grace. And we ask, Lord, that as we go from here today, that we would live in light of your kingdom that is coming. Thank you, Jesus, in your name. Amen.